Hey, everybody, thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Preacher Boys podcast. I make this show for you, and I hope that you really enjoy it. I have a lot of people that ask me how they can support the show financially, and you can do that by heading over to patreon.com slash preacherboys. You're going to get access to exclusive content, including early releases of episodes. I've got a couple episodes right now that have been released at least a month early over on Patreon. You've got access to things like unique merch, depending on what tier you join, and you get access to some behind-the-scenes content that I'm posting within the group. So head over to patreon.com slash preacherboys and become a member over there today. Every single supporter helps make this show a little bit more possible, especially as I continue to add additional episodes and content every single week. Thank you so much for tuning in. Let's get back to the show. Trigger warning. This podcast contains descriptions of various abusive situations. Listener discretion is advised. You are listening to the Preacher Boys Podcast, a podcast shedding light on decades of mental, physical, and sexual abuse within the independent fundamental Baptist movement. The testimonies shared on this podcast are told from the personal experience and perspective of the survivors. Not all legal outcomes are known or final. Any suspect is presumed innocent until proven guilty in the court of law. Now, here is your host, Eric Skwarzynski. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Preacher Boys podcast. If you're listening to this episode, you're probably already aware by now that there is a four-part documentary series about the independent fundamental Baptist movement called Let Us Pray, a Ministry of Scandals, hitting Investigation Discovery November 24th and November 25th, and then streaming on Max, formerly known as HBO Max. And this is obviously incredible and exciting news. And it's exciting news for a lot of reasons. One, it's incredible that this is getting a widespread, culturally impactful type of coverage. Uh, This is something that I've wanted since the Preacher Boys podcast started. As many of you know, when I started doing Preacher Boys, my original goal was not to do a podcast. It wasn't to ever record now 250 plus episodes. It was to try to find two or three people that might be willing to share their story and uh, to create a documentary myself. And with everything from the entire country shutting down to then starting the Preacher Boys podcast, which really, through happy accident, blew up. And to date, I mean, I, I really don't know how I could match the reach of the podcast and the hundreds of survivors I've been able to talk to through the show. It's been truly amazing. But still, over the past three years, there's been that itch for there to be a documentary series or a documentary film that really covers this in a fantastic way and brings more awareness and with more skill uh, than I have. And honestly, that dream has really been answered through this series. Uh, I'm really, really proud of the work that the team behind it has done. I am privileged to be on screen in the series, but the production team behind the scenes has been working on this for literally years. And uh, it's led by Sharon uh, Lease, who is a um, Emmy-winning director. Her producer is also an Emmy winner. Her name's Sam. She's absolutely amazing, as well as a female-led production company. And since, I believe, 2019, uh, they've been working on this project, got in touch with me in 2020, and for the last couple of years have been so lucky and honored and just thankful to be working with them on this project. And that leads me to today's episode. So the episode you're going to hear right now, as soon as I finish this uh, long-winded intro, uh, was recorded on April 6, 2022. Now, this was recorded the same day that I sat down to record uh, several hours of interview content for this four-part docuseries. And the way that the day culminated was in a sit-down conversation with today's guest, who is Ruthie Nordgren-Heiler. Ruthie, it was the first time I'd ever met her, and um, you know, I had recorded all day. Her flight got in. She literally came into studio. We met on camera, sat down to record the podcast episode on camera, and I want to say that specifically because there may be one or two parts throughout this episode where you might notice a jarring shift in uh, the questions or in the tone. 
And so I want to give you kind of like a painted picture of the scene. So I'm meeting Ruthie for the first time. We're both on camera. We're both nervous because I I don't know about you. I've never recorded a podcast episode with a massive cinema camera, you know, four inches from your face. Literally, if you guys could see the room, and I think you will in the documentary series, it was like a closet. And so there was like three crew members. There was a uh, massive camera jammed right next to my face on Ruthie's face. And we're sitting there trying to have a conversation and, you know, because it was part of a shoot and because they're trying to grab what they need to grab, you know, I'm sitting there interviewing Ruthie and then about like 30, 40 minutes in, I would get like, Hey, can you ask that question again in a shorter way? I'm sure you guys can imagine I got that direction a lot, but things where they were trying to let me do the show in an organic way, but also, you know, for sake of time and brevity and making their edit a lot easier, they had me be a lot more succinct with some questions or, you know, I, there were certain questions I tried to personally avoid because I knew she was going to go through, you know, four or five hours of interviews, if not more herself with the team the next day and, uh, and have been traveling all day. I didn't want to dive too, too deep into the story. And so we literally sat down and recorded for almost two hours, uh, the process between the prep of that and then doing it. I mean, we were sitting in that room together for about two hours and, you know, 20 minutes or so. And the episode you're about to hear has been cut down to about 58 minutes. Now I didn't cut out anything that's relevant to this topic. Uh, but that just gives you a sense of like how much behind the scenes, like waiting for cameras to reset, waiting for things to go. Like it was chaotic. We both left this interview going, Oh my God, I hope that we got something out of this and that this is even uh, intelligible as an, as an episode. Uh, but to be honest, looking back at it, I hadn't listened to it uh, in, you know, the year and a half since we'd done it. And when I sat down to edit about a month ago, um, I was legitimately, uh, you know, I was nervous, was talking with Ruthie and we were both saying, she's like, I don't know if you're going to be able to use it. And I listened to my conversation with her and I was absolutely blown away. Um, I didn't remember much of the conversation because of all the nerves that were there when we were recording. I didn't really remember where all we talked. I just remembered feeling the sense of like nervousness and like chaos that comes with doing something like what we were doing, which was totally uncharted territory. And when I listened to the conversation and when I heard the way that Ruthie uh, elaborated on her story and her vision for things that can be done for the way that justice can be, uh, you know, kind of measured out in these cases, when she talked about her frustration with the legal system, it, it was just incredibly, incredibly powerful. And I think Ruthie's bravery through the chaos, through the the things that were unexpected, through being exhausted from her traveling and me filming all day and sitting down to this interview, I think this episode came out just incredibly beautiful. And I think that everyone needs to listen to this all the way through. Now, some of the things that we talk about in this story, um, you know, circumstances have changed since we recorded and uh, things progressed with her case since we recorded. And we did record an episode that will give an update on that. But to have a foundation of Ruthie's story, this is a beautiful, uh, you know, capturing of that story, I think. And that's all Ruthie. I'm thankful for the opportunity to have interviewed her, to have met her in person, uh, and to have spent so much more time with her than I often get to with so many of my guests. So here's my conversation with Ruthie. I hope you'll listen to every single second and really take the time to just think through her story. And I really hope that you'll see more of her story on Investigation Discovery when that episode airs November 24th and November 25th. Uh, Her story deserves to be heard. All of the survivors in the series deserve to have their stories heard. And uh, I'm just happy to share a small glimpse of one right now. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Preacher Boys podcast. On today's episode, I'm sitting down with Ruthie Nordgren-Heiler, and we're going to be talking heavily about her work as an advocate. On the show, we talk a lot about people's stories of abuse and diving deep into the experiences that they had within the independent fundamental Baptist movement. But today, I'm honored to bring on a fellow advocate, somebody that has spent much of her time trying to push for better legislation for survivors, trying to uh, open doors for victims who haven't come forward to feel safe to do so. And 
it's valuable to me and validating to sit down with somebody who has been working in the space of advocacy, who has been trying to uh, move things along when it comes to the topic of abuse at the hands of clergy. So Ruthie, thank you so much for joining me on today's episode. Thank you. It's good to be here. Yeah, glad to have you on, and uh, I'm glad to finally meet in person. I've been following your story uh, for a little while now and getting to see all the work you're doing in the present, uh, but I want to go back to the beginning. You grew up in a very restrictive version of a very restrictive religious group. Was it something that you can remember a time that everything switched to being part of this denomination? Um, I was born into it. So my parents had already been in it. Um, they weren't born into it. They kind of got into it when they were older and that's how they met and got married. Um, and then I and my sibling, my older sibling was born into it. When you look back at the very beginning was your feeling toward the movement pretty positive or was it something for as long as you can remember, there was this kind of unsettling feeling about the IFB in your church? Um, I would say it was positive because I didn't know anything different. I didn't know anything um, other than that environment. So looking back definitely now it's not so positive, but in it, it was positive in the beginning. The name Grace Baptist church John Jenkins, that has come up probably since day one of starting the show. Like people keep bringing it up. And then I would ask and go, what information do you have? And they'll go, I don't know. It's just, I've heard so many things. Are you going to cover it? And you're the first person I've talked to who's actually been part of that world. Um, For someone who doesn't know about grace, who doesn't know about that environment, Can you give us a little bit of context as far as what that was like, what that culture was like at Grace? I came from a a stricter background before Grace. So when we actually moved to Grace, when I was a little bit older, I was 12. um, To me, it seemed more relaxed version of IFB, Um, like girls wore makeup short a little bit shorter skirts than what I was used to. So for me, at first, it was okay, this is different. It was kind of like culture shock almost, even though it was IFB, it was way more relaxed than I was used to. So um, looking back, obviously it was like, it still wasn't (laughs) anything overly positive, but um, first going into it, it was, I was the outsider because I was, I wore the different clothes, didn't wear makeup, all that kind of stuff. So it almost felt more relaxed in a really strange way. Right. Right. Yeah. How old were you when you switched to Grace? Um, 12. Okay. So um, I was born at Fairhaven Baptist in Chesterton, Indiana. Oh, okay. Um, And my parents split up. And so we knew of Grace because my sisters, my older sisters were in the girls' home. And so when my parents split up, my mom was looking for another church to go to. And that was the only other one that she really knew of that had similar beliefs. Um, so we moved there. Yeah. So it was looking for that kind of stability and security. Correct. And did it did it feel like when you went, did you feel like you got that that stability security? I, I know it felt more relaxed as far as like standards and things, but did it feel like a new home, home away from home? No. Mm. <laughs> um, I definitely got more of the view of a hierarchy as far as mm. I came from now a single mother's home, which an IFB is low on the totem right. pole. Um, so I saw a very negative, non-accepting side of things. Um, I felt like a complete outsider because all the people in my class, I went to school there, grew up there. So yeah. I was this outsider, single mother. Um, so no, I didn't feel like we had that stability or family network. Did you feel like that was a verbal thing? Like people would openly judge you for the background or was it more of like an indirect, the way people would talk around you or the way that people treated you made you feel like you were lower in the caste system a little bit? It was more indirect, just how you were treated in a way. Um, And, you know, my mom worked like two jobs at times and was trying to support us. And so like we couldn't afford everything that other people could afford. And it was almost like if you couldn't afford those things, you weren't as important because your family wouldn't tithe as much. And it was 
it was unspoken. It wasn't directly said to you, but it was just this feeling you had. Obviously, looking back now, I understand that. But in it, it was just more of you felt like a black sheep. Right, right. And you're at an age, too, where, you know, I mean, 12, like you're starting to figure out life on your own, you know. And so being in those kind of early stages of life and then also having your environment change drastically is a lot. Like that's a lot of change to yeah. process in a row. Definitely. You have your parents splitting up, moving to completely different school, different, you know, all your friends from childhood, from birth, basically you went to nursery with them, totally new environment, you know, and the way we left Fairhaven, a lot of the parents of my friends wouldn't let them talk to me. So it was a complete cutoff mm. and new environment. Wow. You mentioned that it didn't feel like a, a safe, comfortable place. You know, it didn't feel like home. Um, do you feel like, while well, people in the church definitely looked at you differently for your position, do you think that the church itself saw an opportunity to mold you or to, you know, get an extra foothold within your family? Like, do you think they use that as kind of a control element? Um, not really. It almost felt like I didn't even matter. Hmm. If that makes sense. Yeah. Like, and especially after the abuse came out that I went through, it was almost like then my dress and appearance was more like picked on by people like adults in the church. Sure. Whereas it wasn't before. So I just, I just felt like a complete outcast the whole time I was at Grace Baptist. Yeah. Well, you mentioned abuse. And obviously you've been very vocal sharing that story, but for people listening, can you tell me a little bit about how quickly after joining the church that this started um, and kind of what opened the door for abuse to start happening? So uh, we started religiously going to Grace Baptist when I was 12, like halfway through, I was in seventh grade. I started in the school Um so I knew Aaron Willand for about, I want to say like January 2003, um, and he moved away in like July. So from when I met him in January, I would say it's January. That's my guess because obviously a long time ago, I don't remember. Um, he started abusing me in like June. Wow. So it's so, really quickly. Yes. Then. Yeah. Well, I had read in an article that he had used the excuse that it looked like you needed a father figure, that he used that as leverage to begin building a relationship and getting access. Was that kind of his approach from the beginning? I think it was more so that looking back on it now, I, he targeted me in the way he did and, and groomed me in the way he did because I didn't have a father. It was more of that um, friend, um, father figure relationship he tried to build. Like I didn't understand it then, but looking back, because he does have three victims and he groomed us in all completely different ways, really? having okay. talked to those victims. So I think that's the approach he used on me. Another approach was he used, um, you know, I love you. And then another one, he was completely um, making threats and violent. So mm. he had three different techniques. Interesting. You mentioned other victims. And one thing that surprises me about your story in general is like how many times he was caught, how many red flags there were it seems like for years before you arrived on the scene. And uh, it seems like if someone had said something that it could have avoided multiple victims, you know, down the road. Um, what were some of the early red flags surrounding him that people kind of all out ignored? Back then we only knew of one other victim cause she's very close to me. Um, she wants to remain anonymous. I can't release details, but um, she didn't, um, go public with it um, until after my abuse, unfortunately. So it was, um, everything came out later. So once these articles came out and detectives reached out to Jenkins and Hagland, Derek Hagland, um, I got a copy of their police statement um, and they openly admitted to knowing he was inappropriately alone with 
a female victim that later came forward. Yeah. Um, her name's Larissa. So they knew about her um, long before my abuse and possibly even before the other victim that's close to me abuse. Um, so they, they openly admitted knowing he had been caught alone with young female students on more than one occasion. Um, and it even says in there that he, um, I'm trying to remember, get it up and read it, but basically they confronted him about this and that he needs to stop being alone with female students um, and said that he got violent, was throwing things around, but they said that they allowed him to continue teaching because this was in spring of 2003. So that date's very important. So spring of 2003, they knew and they said they allowed him to continue because there was only a little bit left of the school year and they let him finish his contract and then didn't renew his contract. But I was not abused until summer of 2003. So had they followed proper protocols and notified parents that he was alone with these students and that and notified parents that he had broke school policy, as they said, my abuse very well probably never would have happened. Yeah. Speaking specifically to you, because I know you mentioned you use different methods with with different people. One thing I want to ask, actually, before I ask that, one thing I want to ask is that a lot of a lot of people in IFB circles use terminology like "so and so fell" or "so and so was tempted" or so, and we could talk for hours about how backwards that is when it comes to stories like this. But you specifically use the word "targeted." Mm-hmm. Um, do you believe from day one? that he was attempting to do something. Do you believe that from day one, he was trying to fulfill some ulterior motive beyond just trying to be helpful or trying to do the right thing in the beginning? Um, I can't really say for certain cause I did have him as my teacher, but then I babysat for them and he was already abusing the person that was close to me and she went out of town to visit friends and that's when my abuse started. So did I have a target? I can't say for certain. It was kind of like an opportunity thing, but I do know looking back, he was alone with female students in his office with the door shut on numerous occasions. It was not a one-time thing. All the students knew it. Um, so I do think he had several feelers out for different girls. He was looking for opportunities wherever Correct. he could find them. And I kind of fell into that opportunity and that's when he took it. You would have been completely justified to walk away and never want to look back. But instead you've taken the route of becoming an advocate, speaking openly about your story. At what point did you decide to make that decision? Cause it's obviously a heavy thing to put yourself back into, to relive that and sharing your story. What was it that gave you the confidence to share that story in a public forum for the first time? Um, I think if you look back at my victim's impact statement, when he was first, when Willand was first um, tried for my abuse, I said I, I was doing this because I didn't want any other victims. Um, he had a young daughter. Um, so I was very concerned about him being around other girls. And I think even though so much time had passed, I always wondered, like, were there other victims of his? You know, there was two that I knew of, me and one other. So I I just felt like with as many churches as he was involved in, that there was probably other victims. And so it was kind of like speaking up. And even if nothing happened other than a warning out there, then, you know, that was enough for me. But it was kind of like I'd had my voice squashed before and I just wanted my my story out there, not the lies that were being told about me. Right. Yeah. Because there's one perspective being spoken every week, <laughs> you know, like there's somebody who gets to share their side and get a microphone all mm-hmm. the time. Tell me about, I, I mean, you obviously were involved in Sarah Smith's article, which I cite all the time. I think it's an incredible piece of journalism. And she did such a great job connecting the dots of the movement itself did you have any idea how widespread that article was going to get and how much of an impact it was going to have? Not, not at all. I thought it was a little paper in Texas and it was kind of like 
Um, you know, John Jenkins had told these lies about me. If I can get my truth out there, even at the small paper, it's somewhere in black and white, my story, my version of things, then I'm for it. And little did I know everyone in IFB, a lot of these IFB circles would read it. I'd never thought that would happen. So tell me about when that article, because it dropped like a bomb. I mean, people were sharing it everywhere, IFB, non-IFB alike. What was the reaction to you specifically like day one when it dropped and started getting traction? Did people start contacting you? Did you did you just sense like, oh no, this is bigger than I expected? <laughs> like what was the emotion you were feeling at that point? Um, a little bit, but then it was almost like um it was a little taste of justice, like mm. my version is out there and whatever BS statement you want to come out with, because Jenkins did come out with a BS statement, um, my version is out there. So if you want to believe a person that has been um, accused of covering up abuse by multiple people, it's not just me, but by multiple people and their families over a victim who has a convict, like a convicted rapist is who I'm blasting and you don't believe that, then that's on you. But um, I just wanted it out there. Did Jenkins release a response to that article at all, or did he talk about it at all, or did he kind of hope that it would just kind of die out? <laughs> um, yeah, so he did release an article or a, a statement, and because we had gone to local papers as well, because they reached out to us, and it was kind of a lot of traction. Um, and so he did release a public statement, and basically, um, it was full of lies. It was my section anyway. I can't speak for others, but. The part that he said that he um, reported to police with me and my mother was a complete fabrication. Now this has grown. I mean, you co-founded the Blind Eye Movement mm -hmm. and you're laser focused now on advocacy, talking about abuse within churches, both your stories, but also all the other victims that have come forward that have yet to come forward. What's the, what is the goal? Like when you, when you're working on putting together a movement like this, when you're working on this, is it purely just to get the stories out there? Is there something that you would hope that would happen that would provide some kind of closure? Obviously, ultimately, justice is what's desired, but what's the ultimate goal of the Blind Eye Movement? So I think at first we started it because it was we saw victims coming forward from grace, and it was like a way for them to reach out to us and how many of us are there really? And it was more of like a support group for us. And then when we had so many people, other people reaching to, out to the page, like, Hey, this happened to me too. Good for you. You know, coming public. I don't want to come public, but I'm glad that the word is being spread about this. Yeah. And it just was kind of a uplifting feeling. And yes, there are other advocacy groups out there, but not everyone is tailored to specific people. Some, you know, women that have been in IFB and feel scared to um, report abuse might see our page run by women that went through the same thing and feel more comfortable coming out to um, speak to us about it than they would say um, a group ran by a man or a group right. ran by, um, you know, because there are like boys home groups and in the IFB circle. So it's kind of like we're here for whoever feels comfortable to come forward and help guide them on what to do. You know, there are ways to leave the IFB. You know, the the police aren't bad. CPS isn't bad. Um, everything we were taught in the IFB. So we're just here to help anybody that feels comfortable enough to come forward to us and um, help guide them on their way towards justice or um, safety, ultimately. Yeah. yeah, that's something I tell people all the time because people point to a snap or they point to these different organizations that do a really good job in mm -hmm. what they do. But my thing is always there's room for specialists. You know, yeah. you need people who can work. Again, I'm limited in how much I can help female survivors because right. I can only educate myself to a certain point. Like mm -hmm. experience is something you can't replicate. And I think it's valuable to have people with different voices and perspectives helping different people leave and navigate the movement. Right. Um, before we talk a little bit about your case again specifically, what is something that you wish more people as they step into advocacy, as they try to lend a hand to survivors and try to help them, what's something you wish they knew going in? What's something you wish they would maybe change in their approach as they try to help survivors navigate 
the aftermath of these abuses? I think admitting to yourself that it's not a one fit for all. Um, even when you're looking for a therapist, not every therapist understands IFB mental abuse, like all that we went through. Um, so understanding that you might not be a good fit to talk to somebody and you need to guide them somewhere else. It's not about you. It's about what they need. Um, I think that's a big thing because we had a little bit of um, an issue there with a person in our group that was kind of trying to be, you know, forceful in how somebody should address mm-hmm. things. And that's just never the outlook you should have. You should be a listening ear and, um, you know, guide them to a per- I'm not a therapist. So, um, I understand I'm here to listen, but guiding them towards, um, getting help and being safe and all of that is the utmost importance to me. Yeah. I know you mentioned just a second ago, law enforcement isn't inherently bad. Um, but also on the flip side of that, there's a lot of red tape and bureaucracy when it comes to these cases. And I know you've experienced a ton of that. There's been so much red tape with this case. Uh, where is your case currently? And uh, what kind of barriers have there been to seeing progress take place? Yeah, so the system could definitely um, use some improvement there. Um, unfortunately, my case, the last hearing was November 2020, um, and he did opt for a jury trial, but we have not heard any new updates since then. And I've reached out and reached out and tried to clarify the importance of a convicted rapist is just walking free yeah. right now. And that's a big issue to me, like as victims, we step forward to protect other women. And it is almost a slap in the face a little bit. Like, um, you know, if there are any other victims right now, I mean, it's like, I've done everything I can. Why aren't you? And it's a frustration. Um, So, you know, I understand there's been delays due to COVID and other things like that. But the fact that he was bonded to me is the main issue. Yeah. Yeah, it's and it's not uncommon. That's what's that's what's scary reading stories like that or seeing these situations is that this isn't rare. Like this right. is most people that I talk to are like you said finding the courage to speak up about horrific abuses and then getting slapped in the face by the mm-hmm. legal system. They're getting put through red tape, they're getting, you know, reporting to sometimes law enforcement officials that don't care or push them to the side. Right. And it's it's scary to me how often that happens. Um, That's like um, Brianna, another girl in my group, actually came forward, I believe it was in 2013, and reported everything. And the prosecutor at that time said, you know, I'm not going to proceed with charges. Well, fast forward to when the article came out, um, that prosecutor, it was a new prosecutor, did. And her uh, rapist is sitting in prison for, I believe, 15 years now. So it's like what changed between 2013 and 2018, 2019. You know, why didn't that happen? And the scary part is, is the prosecutor that declined to move forward on charges in, in the first place is now the prosecutor again and overseeing my case. So it's a little bit unsettling and there's a little bit of fear there. Like, does he really have victims in mind? Like, yeah. Right. So for you specifically in your journey, what do you want to see happen next? Obviously you want to see this come to a close. Will that be the end of the chapter for blind eye, will that be enough for you to, you know, feel that closure and be able to step away? Or is it something where regardless of what happens with your case, you feel like this is something that you want to keep doing, continue working at moving forward? Um, I think ultimately I will want to continue um, just shining a light on what other victims may be potentially going through right now in the IFB. I think until people step forward and there's an actual change in the IFB, um, you know, nothing will change. And until they address the past, like John Jenkins moved to another church, but he never addressed all these lives that he's um, left in shambles before he left. And I, I, I don't think you will move on until that. So I don't feel like John Jenkins will change until he addresses that. And so it's kind of like always keeping an eye out and like, I'm here, we're watching you. 
um, we're going to continue shining a light on these things. Um, so yeah, I, do I have closure? Um, as far as my abuse, yes, is, um, which is crazy, but I have forgiven Aaron Willand. I have not forgiven John Jenkins. Um, the fact that he could have prevented my view, my abuse and was I not worthy enough of protection haunts me to this day. Do you feel like you've, do you feel like you have any understanding as to why, you know, cause you look at these stories and again, it's a common story that churches will protect. They'll go out of their way, fall over themselves, risk their reputation, their entire ministry protecting an abuser and also going to those same efforts to push a victim out. Why do you think the priority is so misplaced? Why do you think there's such an attempt to protect abusers over victims? I think churches, church congregations are so manipulated that I don't feel like these pastors feel like they're risking anything. I feel like they're protecting these abusers to protect themselves and protect their reputation um, because, one, their word and the way that the IFB is set up, the pastor's like, God, basically, the highest. Um, and so I feel like their word over these victims is always going to be believed. And so they have no fear of punishment or being called out or being, you know, somebody like me being believed. So I think ultimately it's to save face and they're not worried about other victims. They're more so worried about their reputation. With all of that in mind, obviously there's people like John Jenkins who aren't going to change. You know, right. they've they've drawn their line in the sand, so to speak. For the movement as a whole, one question I used to ask for probably the first year I did the show, I would end every show with, do you think there's hope for reform in the independent fundamental Baptist movement? And I'm curious, now that you've worked with victims from Grace and so many different churches, do you feel optimistic that any real sweeping change could happen within that denomination? Um, it's a tough question because I want to say yes. I want to, um, think that all these churches will be protected and, and these girls, um, but no, I don't because it's always being taught and until there's a change and, and the problem is, is a lot of these pastors are egotistical and tend to be drawn to that role. Um, I don't think there's going to be a change until pastors stand up, and I have not seen that, um, maybe one. So it's it's hard to think that any change is going to happen when basically victims come forward and they're attacked and said, you know, you're hurting the cause of Christ, and I, I just don't see a change. I hope for one, but... I'm going to get you back into today's episode in just a moment, but first I want to thank the sponsor that is making today's episode possible, and that sponsor is Factor. Factor creates no prep, no mess meals. You can meet your wellness goals in time for summer thanks to the menu of chef-crafted meals with options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Factor's fresh, never-frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, no matter how many podcasts you're recording, going up and down the stairs, trying to take meetings, whatever you're doing, you'll always have time to enjoy nutritious, great tasting meals. And I can say this from experience. They were kind enough to send me a couple of meals for this week, and I enjoyed one just shortly before reading this ad, and it is amazing. And with 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from every week, you'll always have new flavors to explore. You can make your day delicious from breakfast to dessert and stay fueled with easy, nutritious options. And these aren't meals that skimp on quality either. You've got things like filet mignon, shrimp, blackened salmon, and so much more. So if you want to try it, go head over to factormeals.com slash preacherboys50 and use code preacherboys 50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code PreacherBoys50 at factormeals.com slash PreacherBoys50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. Go check out Factor and now check out the rest of this episode. 
Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's the biggest thing. I came into this show optimistic on some level, Mm -hmm. like once the floodgates open, once it's really revealed, you know, there's going to be a band of pastors. The good ones are going to come out of the woodwork, you know, and then when a pastor like Stacey Schifflake comes out and then does a video and you're like, okay, well, one of their people said it. So now maybe it'll happen. And instead it just cannibalizes anybody who speaks out about it. Mm -hmm. And I've become much more pessimistic about the future of the movement. The longer that I've done this, because Mm -hmm. I keep realizing like there's not many good ones to come out. (laughs) There's not many in the movement that care. I think to me, the ones that maybe do are, should like take IFB out of the name. Yeah. Just you say it's independent, but it's really not. It's, it's a big network of the same thing. And I feel like it's just a bad group. And unfortunately um, there's no change that's, that's come forward. It's just been basically attack these victims and it's unfortunate really. So obviously the odds of changing church culture we know is not strong. We've both been working at this for a long time and the response has not been good on the side of the church. There is a lot more opportunity. It seems to work on the system itself when it comes to law enforcement, when it comes to how this is handled in the courts, Uh, you're really focused in Michigan right now in evoking some change. Why Michigan specifically as a start? Um, And, you know, How have things progressed from there? How have you kind of been spreading out past Michigan? Right. So as far as Michigan is, is that's the state that um, I have tried to pursue civil charges. And right now there's a statute of limitations and it's an age. I I believe it was um, 28 years old is like the max you can be to file a civil suit um, like this. So it would need we would need to change the statute of limitations and i am going to meet with a state representative about that and try to um you know kind of give a statement as to why i think it's important for victims to have that statute of limitation lifted um to file a suit for child victims of sexual abuse um so and and michigan it's just the start you know it's the first state we would like to do every state um you know because victims everywhere it doesn't matter um what state you live in it's you know an age age is just a number like they should be able to go um, further than 28 to seek justice and no, a civil suit is not just about money. You know, I've gotten that a lot. Oh, you're just money hungry. It's about, um, putting on paper, holding these churches accountable for abuse that they've covered up and seeing that in paper would be, or seeing that happen would be very healing to know that, you know, I'm validated. Like my abuse happened. You could have prevented it and hold them accountable for that. And right now I can't do that because of the statute. So that to me is important for not only myself, but victims all over the country. Yeah. yeah the statute of limitations really handcuffs the victims. You know, it restricts them from being able to, you know, pursue anything. And, you know, as well as I do, I mean, it takes years to get to a point for many survivors right. to be able to share their story. And by the time that they are, the system says, well, it's too late. You you had your chance to do this. What positive, you mentioned you're seeing now with a representative, um, what positive moves are you seeing within Michigan, within some of the other, you know, lawsuits that are being filed? You know, I think of Kathy Durbin in Southern California. I think of, um, you know, lawsuits being placed all over the country. What progress are you seeing uh, being made right now? Um, I know that there was a um, appeals hearing not long ago um, to try to change the statute of limitations. So it's just getting it out there and not basically not backing down and letting people know this is important. You know, some victims don't even realize that it's a possibility to file a civil suit. Um, so putting an age on that just to me doesn't seem fair to to justice. No. So in Michigan specifically, there was a story with the former Speaker of the House that put Michigan and the IFB movement in Michigan on the map in a big way. Describe to me how you felt when that story broke and gained a lot of attention really quickly. 
Um, so Rebecca Chatfield, of course, I knew who she was. I went to Grace Baptist with her. Um, and so on one hand, I was heartbroken. I mean, um, she was younger than me. It was this young girl in my mind. That's how I remembered her having gone through um, similar abuses to what I went through. And um, so I was heartbroken. And then I wanted to reach out and say, hey, I'm here if you ever need anything. And so I did reach out to her and um, just, I also wasn't, and, and then on the other hand, I was angry because I was not surprised with how the church handled it and how they, um, you know, released a statement. It was an affair and the typical IFB response to these kind of situations that we've seen numerous times is it was an affair and it was an abuse and, you know, um, he stumbled or he made a mistake and just totally surrounding the abuser with support. And so I just felt that all over again in a sense of, you know, what she must be feeling in that situation. You said something interesting, which is you weren't surprised. Yeah. Have you lost your ability to be surprised by some of the things that you find out about within that movement? Unfortunately, yes. Um, it's like an abuse story comes out and it's like, Oh, there's another one. And it's Makes just sense, yeah. added to the tally. We have a mutual friend, Kathy Durbin, and I know that you were present when she gave her victim impact statement. Um, tell me a little bit about that day specifically and connecting with Kathy for the first time, because that was stepping outside of Michigan, going to a different location, trying to stand with someone, you know, what was that process kind of like and how, what did that mean to you as an advocate? It was amazing. Kathy's amazing. Her bravery and her story and how much she went through. It just, it really moved me. And I got emotional, like seeing her be able to stand up and give her victim's impact statement and see her abuser in handcuffs and led away. Like it gave me chills and I was just so happy for her to see justice. And it was just an amazing thing to witness and her just standing there so brave giving that statement. Um, and it kind of gave me uh, an insight into if that ever comes for me, like what to be prepared for. And so it was just an amazing experience and I was so happy for her. In addition to sharing a lot of similarities when it comes to abuse. Uh, you and Kathy both share a connection that there was someone that made it possible. She has essentially a John Jenkins in her life in Pastor Bruce Goddard, who has also covered relentlessly for abusers within that church and within that ministry. You know, what would you say to the Kathy Durbins of the world or you a couple years back when you're dealing with facing someone who is so strategic in trying to protect abusers, you know, that can be really discouraging. Uh, what kind of encouragement would you give to victims who are dealing with people like that, who are every step of the way discrediting what they're trying to say? The things I say to myself is stand firm because the people that matter believe you and the people that are in there and still brainwashed, they matter too. But in the sense of the people like victims or potential victims that are in there are watching your move and what you're doing. And so it's standing firm to let them know that there is um, a possibility for justice in this situation. I love that you said the people that matter believe you like mm -hmm. that. That's something that's so hard because they are so loud. The Bruce Goddard's, the John mm -hmm. Jenkins, they're screaming at the top of their lungs to not mm -hmm. believe it. Like you said, there are so many people silently watching and people supporting that just don't have a platform to share that they're supportive. Right. They don't know how to reach out. And I think that's so valuable for people listening to this podcast to hear someone say is that there are, you know, I, I told that to somebody who talked to me a couple, a couple months ago now. And that was one of the things I said. I said, I know if you come forward, you'll have at least however many thousand people are going to listen to the episode that right. support you. Like mm -hmm. you at least have that. So don't worry about the two people that don't matter who are right. never going to change their mind right. about who you are. They're ultimately, sadly they're brainwashed and that's never going to go away. Um, 
unfortunately, a lot of them have been so rooted deep in IFB that that's never going to change. And their opinion of me and other people that have spoken out, Kathy Durbin, it does not matter. What matters is those watching that could potentially leave the church or seek help if they're in that similar situation. Those are the people that matter to me. Why do you think some people wake up and some people don't? Because you mentioned like, it seems like some are basically brainwashed, you know, they've Mm -hmm. been so indoctrinated or they've been raised in it. Why do you think that that switch is flipped for some people where they can see like, oh, I see what's happening here versus Mm -hmm. the people who stay in it and don't uh, don't see a need to change what they're doing or don't see all the red flags and all the things that to a normal person they would go. There's something wrong here. This doesn't make any sense. Right. Um, I think, unfortunately, in in my experience anyway, is it's those people haven't had it happen to them. And once it does, it's like, oh, you know, they were telling the truth. This is really happening. It's That's almost, what has to happen. It has to happen to them. Or right. Know. Right. And then it's, you know, and I always think, how could you say these things about a 12-year-old girl, you know, that they were seductive? That's what was said about me. And how could you have a daughter and say that about somebody else's daughter? But it's for some reason that brainwashing is so deep until it happens to them. You know, that light bulb doesn't go off like, hey, you know, maybe there is some truth to what these victims have been saying all along. So, so much exposure has to happen with abusers. And I think now that we live in an age where people can start podcasts from their bedroom, you know, mm-hmm. and people can write blogs, people can reach out to newspapers in a different state and give interviews. There's a lot of light starting to be shed on the people actually abusing. How important is it though to shine a light on the network that enables the abuser? You know, I was I said on an interview recently, you know, it takes a village to raise a child, it also takes a village to abuse one. You know, I've heard a couple of different advocates kind of use that rhetoric that it's a communal action. Um, How do we go about exposing people who are enabling the abusers? And do you believe that's equally important to exposing the abuser themselves? I definitely do think it's equally as important because without these people that are pastors, ultimately, that are covering up all of this abuse, you know, there wouldn't be as many victims as there are. So yes, you have an abuser that's abusing these victims, but the amount of victims is basically being attributed back to that covering up of abuse. So it's just as important in my mind to shine light on you know, people covering up this abuse. What percentage of the average independent Baptist church, you know, would you say is ignorant to abuses taking place versus people sitting at pew who are aware of these stories and they're aware of, you know, these cover-ups happening, but they just don't care because I wrestle with that. Like sometimes I think everybody knows about this. Everybody mm-hmm. knows. And then I'll talk to a lady in a church somewhere that goes, I've never heard of that. Or I've never right. heard of a Jack Hiles. I've never heard of a John Jenkins. I didn't know this was a problem. Like, do you think the m- most people are ignorant or do you think most people are willfully ignorant when it comes to not seeing these things? That's a good question. Um, I kind of battle with that question because part of me feels like, you know, how could they not know in today's day of technology? Yeah. How could they not? Um, but on the other hand, I feel like with every religion, there's extremists within that religion. And so IFB is no different. There's extremists on one end that are very brainwashing and controlling. And, but then there are still good people within IFB churches. Um, So I don't know. I I do struggle with that because I never want to lump them as one in a sense. Um, I wish that some IFB churches would step away and maybe take the name out of their church or something to show that they are different, even if they don't want to stand up in the public eye. Um, But, you know, so I do struggle with that, um, trying like lumping them all together like they're all bad. So stepping outside of Michigan, stepping outside of these immediate cases that you've been close to and you know the people that are involved in them. You know, you've also seen people like Joy Ryder in Indiana and Rhonda Lee who have had to take very unique approaches to trying to pursue justice literally decades after the original case took place. Um, you know, what have you learned from watching their experience and uh, what kind of changes would you like to see happen 
for people in their situation who are having to come forward years and years later and are running into brick walls when it comes to legislation and and trying to see actual change take place. So to me, they are the pioneers of changing that um, statute of limitations. So I'm obviously rooting them on and any change for them is a change for a positive change for every victim. Seeing Joy and Rhonda kind of pave the way um, to change that statute of limitations is a huge victory for victims. Joy and Rhonda are really at the epicenter of the movement. I mean, they're at First Baptist Church of Hammond trying to tackle this behemoth that's abused so many people over the years. Tell me about your experience watching them from afar and how has that impacted you? Um, It's been a huge impact because I feel like a lot of us within the IFB or ex-IFB can admit that um, First Baptist is kind of the epicenter of where a lot of these pastors come from. And so it's almost like this monster at the root that does need to be addressed. And so it's been, you know, um, very inspirational to see them take that on because that is a huge feat. So how has the Blind Eye Movement specifically supported Joy and Rhonda's efforts taking on First Baptist Church of Hammond and David Hiles? Um, so we released a press statement to um, several news sources to try to get the word out there and to spread you know, awareness on this, that this is an important thing happening. And we wanted as much light to be shown on that situation as possible to kind of spread awareness and um, make people aware of what is going on in those statute of limitations. Because the more we get out there, the more coverage we get on that, um, the better it'll be for victims um, currently and victims to come. So it's so important to shine light on that statute of limitations and how it's kind of tied hands of victims all over the country. So what would be the best version of justice for someone like a John Jenkins to see? Like if you could see anything happen in that situation directly toward a John Jenkins, what would you hope would take place? Um, so basically the ultimate thing I would want is for him to admit, um, wrongdoing. Um, my rapist admitted it and he, to me, John Jenkins is the biggest coward for lying and covering all this up and putting all the blame on victims. So for me, the ultimate justice for myself and other victims would to be him, to hear him admit wrongdoing probably never going to happen. Um, so the next thing would be to get it in writing that it was the church's neglect that caused my abuse, which again, the statute of limitations is important because mine's up. So I can't civilly go after John Jenkins or the church. Um, so, and then ultimately, you know, I would not want to be there when he stands before the God. He um, says he worships and and believes in, because according to the Bible that they believe in, um, I mean, he's got a lot to answer for. If you knew this podcast could be listened to by the people who can really create change, who can bring about justice, who can schedule these court dates, who can arrange for justice to take place, what would you like to say to them? What do you wish they could hear from survivors like yourself who are trying so desperately to move things forward? So I can speak for myself and I'm sure other victims feel the same way, but we've done the hardest thing that we will ever do in our lives as far as coming forward and saying we were abused. We want justice. That is not an easy thing to do. And so victims all over have done this. And I feel like in my case, you know, I I did my part and shining a light on all of this. And now it's time for the justice system to do theirs and to get this convicted rapist off the streets and any other victims that could potentially um, occur since he's been out is on the justice system's head at this point. Yeah. I mean, statistically, there's never just one victim, you know? And so that's the thing that I think about constantly is as someone sitting there walking around freely, how many more people do they have access to? Right. And why that doesn't create a sense of urgency in the justice system, why it doesn't create a sense of urgency in the church and just in the culture at large. 
just confounds me. I don't understand how you know that is the case and don't move to create ways to end that quicker. It doesn't make any sense to me. Yeah, me neither. And the fact that, you know, I've had um, a woman reach out to me that knows him personally and says that he's still involved in a church in Washington. And so it just, it bothers me because these leopards don't change their spots. They are predators and that will never go away. In my opinion, Uh, others may have a different one, but in my opinion, it doesn't. And so to me, every day that he is out of prison and not being held accountable is another victim that could be out there. And it's amazing that churches will welcome with open arms people who they can do one Google search and find all this out. That's, that's the thing that's interesting. Like doing the show is that, people always go, can you research so-and-so or can you look them up? I'm like, I can as well as you can (laughs) Google them. Mm -hmm. Like it doesn't take more than two seconds to know this Mm -hmm. person shouldn't be around kids. This person, even if there's an inkling of doubt that they could abuse somebody, why would you be so quick to open the door and say, come in, like come be part of our events, come be around our Christian school. But it's there's like an eagerness almost to put these people back in positions of power. Well, it's funny to me because a lot of churches say it's not about appearance for for broken souls, but it is because these predators put on this fake facade, and like you said, they could Google and and um find you know that they are uh, rapists and all of this, but they put on this fake persona of who they think the church wants them to be. But yet you have people that actually need help in the community and they're kind of shunned aside. So I think that's crazy to me. I I interviewed a guest who had talked with someone in um, law enforcement and they were talking about predators and pedophiles and they were asking uh, the number one trait of predators and pedophiles. And he said, they're able to conform mm-hmm. <laughs> like that is the number one trait. So if you, if they open a door for, they'll open a door for you. They'll say, yes, sir. No, ma'am. They're great at adapting to their situation and being able to, you know, fit in to an area. Like they're, they're really good at adapting. And so when, within a culture like the IFB, it's really easy for them to just shape shift into mm-hmm. I'll throw on my suit and lead music and, do all these different things that make me appear to be the hero of this story. And then everybody that steps away is labeled bitter, vindictive, mm-hmm. you know, divisive and all the things I'm sure your inbox is, uh, is full of as <laughs> mine is. Yes, definitely. So you've been put in a position where you have to push the ball forward. You have to be the one emailing. You have to be the one calling and you have to mm-hmm. be saying, what's the status of this? How do we move this forward? How do we do this? What is the toll that that takes on you? Because I have to imagine it feels in a lot of ways that you're being re-victimized by the system every time one of those emails goes unanswered, every time a phone call gets redirected, every time a court date gets pushed back. What toll does that take on you emotionally and physically as you're trying to keep this moving? Um, so it almost feels like I have a dark cloud and I'm just waiting for the rain. Like, when is that trial date? When is this going to happen? And so it's, it's definitely frustrating. And, you know, the lack of communication is really hard. Like I completely understand why some victims choose not to come forward. It's not easy. Um, I wish I could say it was, um, but it's like, you have to keep on them and, and be, you know, you know, the, um, what do they say? The squeaky wheel gets the grease. So, um, that's just been my, um, my position on it that, you know, I will, I'm not going away. So, you know, I want my trial. I want this, I want justice. So when I get in touch with the prosecutor's office in Gaylord, Michigan, and, you know, say, Hey, anything new has, you know, there been any updates and, um, it's just basically been, you'll, we'll notify you when there's something new. You'll hear when it, you know, basically we'll, we'll cue you when it's your turn. And that's just so frustrating to me because there hasn't been a level of importance to it that I feel like there should be, especially with a convicted rapist and um, all of that. So it's, it's just very frustrating. So one of the people that I've had on the show is Amanda Householder, and she actually had to go so far as to sue her own parents for, abuses that she saw them commit, abuses that 
she experienced, you know, growing up within that family. Have you connected with her at all? Is she somebody that's been on your radar? Um, I am planning to connect with her and I have to really commend her to, you know, suing her parents and spreading awareness and, and all of that. Cause it, it can't be easy. Um, but I know in the same sense that once you do walk away, you do lose your family, not only your actual family, but like your church community and people that you grew up with and know. Um, so I do commend her for that. And um, I do plan to meet with her um, on this trip. And I'm lo- really looking forward to um, meeting her and, and kind of hearing a little bit more about her. And um, as part of the blind eye movement, I, I do love meeting all of these victims and, and what they've gone through and, you know, not feeling alone. And it has been a huge part of my healing um, as well. And um, just being there with, with all these people and, and learning and listening um, has been amazing. So if somebody's listening to this and they want to get a hold of the blind eye movement, they want to see what you're doing, follow your progress. What's the best place for them to do that? Um, so the main place would be probably Facebook. We have um, Blind Eye Movement Original Group is our Facebook um, name. Um, and there's a website and email address listed on there as well. Um, so we do have a lot of people message us through there. And, you know, you can remain totally anonymous. Um, there's people that have emailed anonymously. Um, so, you know, we will respect whatever, um, you know, a person requests of us. And we're just here to support and and guide. And if you're in a situation where you don't feel safe and you're in the IFB or not, um, and you don't feel safe and you don't know what to do and what, what your next steps could be, um, you know, feel free to reach out and, and we'll be there to kind of guide you and point you in the right direction. Well, I absolutely appreciate that you came on the show and I always encourage people, you know, find someone that will understand your story. And I don't by any means think I have a monopoly on advocacy work. I don't think that any one person should think that they have to be the be all end all for everybody. And I love that there's an opportunity for people to connect with you, see the work that you're doing. I know even for me, it's just nice seeing someone else, you know, doing similar work and trying to, you know, raise their voice in an area that it feels like there's been a lot of silence. There's been people turning a blind eye to all of these abuses that have been happening for so long. So thank you for the work that you're doing. And for anybody listening to this episode, I mean, there's links in the show notes to everything that was just mentioned. Uh, I really encourage anyone who has been affected by abuse to follow the work that you're doing and to really take the time to audit themselves audit the systems that they're in and see where they can evoke real change. I think that's really important. And like you said, it's one state at a time. It's one piece of legislation at a time. It's one, one church, church at a time, at a time. <laughs> to, to see this really take place. Yep. Ruthie, I just want to say to you specifically advocate to advocate, I really appreciate you coming on the show and sharing your perspective. It means a lot to me and I know it will to the audience as well. And thank you so much for having me and, you know, being there and shining a light on all these abuses in the IFB. Thank you for listening to the Preacher Boys podcast. If you appreciated the content on the show, please leave a review on iTunes and don't forget to connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter with the handle at Preacher Boys Doc. 